Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, Confident Faith, today as we turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 21, with a message entitled, Tenacious Concern for the Nations. Praying and reading our Bible, I can't think of anything more foundational, establishing disciplines in our lives, a discipline that leads to a life well-lived. And when it comes to prayer, well, we should be praying about everything. And there are personal matters. We should pray about, you know, family matters, matters related to our work or finances, you know, car needs repairs, the bicycle that our son wants so badly, but also matters related to our nation. Matters related to the the nations of the world, matters related to missions, the worldwide advance of the gospel, concern for believers all over the world, concern for unbelievers. I mean, the list of things to pray about, well, they're endless. But today I want to speak about a specific kind of praying. It's the kind of praying that's big, the, the wide, big, grand sweeping prayers that seem to touch everything. You know, it's been said that one of the reasons why our wide-sweeping prayers often sound so weak is that we pray prayers that, well, they say something like this, God bless our missionaries, or God bless the poor of the earth, and, and that sounds vague, and, it, and it's completely ineffective. You know, what actually are we asking God to do? You know, if we're honest, uh, we most likely would say, well, I just don't know. Vague general prayers are boring and often meaningless, and so we don't often pray them. Now, we don't know what we should pray, and furthermore, even though we know that we should be praying those large-scale prayers about major things, well, truth be told, most of us haven't even the slightest idea what we should be praying about, and so we tend to murmur something without a great deal of enthusiasm, or we just give up on those kind of prayers because we can't imagine that anything good can come out of it. But we can pray grand, wide-sweeping prayers if we learn how. It was John Piper who wrote, the words God bless would not sound so weak and vague if we said what the blessing would look like. There's a world of difference between Lord help our missionaries and Lord help our missionaries to drink deep at the river of your delights or Lord help our missionaries rejoice in tribulations and help them to remember that tribulation works endurance and endurance hope. Now, I agree. Indeed, that's excellent insight and a thoughtful and effective approach to prayer. See, this approach demands first that we know something about what our missionaries are facing. It also demands that we know something about what God wants of his missionaries and that we know a great deal about God's agenda in scripture. And so out of this comes a sense of deep concern, a genuine understanding of need, and a recognition that God is able to arrange matters that these prayers prayed within his revealed will are indeed effective. But what about the prayers we pray about other global matters? Global politics, wars on the international stage, human trafficking, especially in, in regard, let's say, to the, the sex trade, global injustices, the bombing of churches, the, the worldwide refugee crisis, and especially praying for conditions that would lend themselves to a more effective penetration of the gospel. For instance, in Muslim lands or in nations like North Korea or India, Vietnam, Laos. You know, think of all of these things and pray. Genesis 18 contains the first record of an extended prayer in our Bible 
And interestingly enough, it's one of those grand world-encompassing prayers. Now, just a little bit of thought tells you that's not surprising. I mean, after all, when Abraham was first called by God, that's recorded in, in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, you might remember that a part of that call was that promise that God would bless all the nations through Abraham. And so you might expect from that that Abraham's mindset at the very outset was a mindset that was deeply concerned for the welfare of the nations of the earth. And so we're not surprised to find Abraham praying in this way. And just so that you get a spoiler alert right now, the actual content of the prayer that is what Abraham is actually praying, I'm going to leave that matter for the next sermon, that's tomorrow. But for now, please notice that Abraham is in a relationship with God that that deals not just with his own immediate situation, but in a relationship with the nations. But let's set the matter in context. You remember, as we've been studying Genesis 18, we saw that Abraham has just entertained God for a meal. God has appeared to him in human form, accompanied by two angels, and we came to the conclusion on the basis of a wider study of Scripture that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But putting that matter aside, we notice that during this encounter, God had revealed to Abraham that by next year, he and Sarah would have a son. And now the three men, God in human form and two angels, get up to leave. And that's the context of what happens next. So I'm reading Genesis 18, verses 16 to 21. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, as we go through this text, we're going to notice two very important features. The first is that the text we're studying today is, in some fashion, simply the opening prologue for the long and extended prayer that follows. And what follows is Abraham's very serious prayer that God would have mercy on the righteous people whom he believes might be living in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, of course, we know that his nephew lives there, and so his concern is also an immediate concern. The second thing we notice about this text, something that will need some explanation, is what some Bible teachers call anthropomorphisms. Now, what that means are human ways of speaking about God. Is it really true that God has to wait until an outcry from a city is so large that it finally catches his notice? Or is this just a human way of speaking about God that's intended to convey a very specific meaning? Well, what's that meaning? Now, we're going to look at all of that, but let's not forget what this is really all about. It, in a very unique way, is the account of a man who prays to God about a grand political moral situation and about the advancement of God's revelation among the nations. So, with that as a background to where this is going, let's begin with this one truth. God is about to reveal to Abraham, the man he has chosen, what it is that he intends to do with the nations. And if you think about it, that in itself is a staggering thought. 
that God would indicate his intention for the nations to the man whom he has chosen. And please notice, this is not the only time we find that kind of a thought in Scripture. Notice Amos 3, verse 7. For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. But consider the context of Amos 3, 7. Verse 6, the verse before that says, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? See the context? When God is about to judge his people, he first reveals what he's doing to the prophets so that when the judgment occurs, people don't just explain the disaster away, but rather they see the hand of God. He has done it. See, in the same way, God is also in the text of Genesis revealing to his prophet Abraham what he is about to do among the nations. After all, we know that that the Bible is so much more than simply a book about the special dealings of God with Israel. Of course, it is that. But the Bible is a book about the nations. See, God's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the earth. For he alone is the creator and he alone rules the earth. I'm reminded of Isaiah 37, verse 29, where God says of the nation Assyria, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. (laughs) The meaning's obvious. God rules Assyria, and he will lead her like a horseman who leads a horse, or like a man might lead an ox with a ring in its nose. God claims that with the greatest of ease, he leads all of the nations of the earth, and they do what he bids that they do. See, the Bible is very clear. God is the author of all of creation, and as Paul says in Acts 17, verse 26, from one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. And so given the context of that, God has chosen Abraham to bless the nations, and he is about to reveal to Abraham what he will do among the nations. The legalization of marijuana. Are you ready? Prepared? Do you understand the impact on you, your community, young people? What is a trustworthy biblical perspective and what's the impact physically, spiritually, socially? In Doubt and In Doubt Live is about connecting today's issues of faith and life with a biblical perspective. Join In Doubt's Isaac Dagno, Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfelt, Dr. Lucinda Scott, and Mark Ward, author of Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in Light of Scripture, live February 22nd at the Clover Theatre in Cloverdale, British Columbia. It's a free event for young adults, so arrive early. Doors open at 6.30, event begins at 7 p.m. And if you can't make it, no worries. The event is being broadcast live on Facebook, and you can submit your questions during the Q&A segment. So, for all the info you need, head to indoubt.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. You'll remember that when Paul said the words of Acts 17.26, that he was saying it in the city of Athens. See, God had determined that the Greeks would inhabit Athens, that the Romans would inhabit Rome, even as he determined that Abraham's descendants should inherit the land of Canaan. God moves people and nations for his purpose. 
He's not just the God of the Jews. He's the God of every man and woman and of every nation on earth. The Bible begins by telling us that that sin caused the forming of separate and divisive cultures. One culture that loved God and hated self and one that loved self and hated God. And as time progressed, the culture that does not fear God not only set out to destroy the saints, but they built a tower that reached to the heavens. That's the Tower of Babel. But God judged that culture and destroyed their tower, and he confused their language and scattered them over the face of the earth. And from there, God designated the separate dwelling places of the nations. But then, at the end of time, when Antichrist rules, the whole earth will again be united under one world ruler. It will be evil on an unprecedented scale. And God will again come and bring judgment on that culture, and then the kingdom of Christ will reign. See, the Bible is a revelation of God's intention among all peoples and among all the nations of the earth. And so, since that's true, it shouldn't surprise us then that when God chose Abraham to be his conduit of blessing to the nations, what happens in the life of Abraham has everything in the world to do with the nations of the earth. And that tells us that the First Testament is not the unique story of Abraham's physical descendants alone. And so one afternoon, Abraham entertained God and two angels. And as the three men get up to leave, listen again to what God says. Verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? About to do about what? Well, we know from the next chapter that God is about to enter into judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And by the time we come to the end of chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah will be completely decimated. In fact, the entire plain where they were, which was once compared to the land of Eden before the fall of humanity, well, it's now a scorched, desolate section of the earth at the southern end of the Dead Sea. So here now is the question. It's a rhetorical question that God asks himself. See, I say it's rhetorical because You see, this entire section of Scripture is set in what I have said is anthropomorphic language. God is expressing his intentions in very human language so that Abraham and and us who read this passage thousands of years later, that we're all going to understand. Shall I hide my plans of judgment from Abraham? Indeed, the question is about much more than simply God revealing his plans about those two cities with one man. Jude verse 7 says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And then it says, they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. See, in other words, these two cities are an example of the fate that awaits the entire earth. And that's why the place of their dwelling is still scorched today. So let me again go to the question of verse 17. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. We're not supposed to think that God's having a debate with himself. Instead, using anthropomorphic language, we're supposed to come to a conclusion. God is determined to reveal his plan or his intention toward the nations. He's making himself known to Abraham. And of course, we're not surprised. After all, God has already told Abraham that through him all the nations will be blessed. And we also, as we read the Bible, come to realize that the entire book, from from Abraham to Jesus and then the apostles and then to the completion of the New Testament, that this, that this Bible is the revealed word of God, not just 
to Christians and Jews, but to all the nations. It's about a God who is determined to fill the earth with his glory and to overcome every act of resistance to his purposes and bring it under subjugation to the man whom he has chosen. See, that starts with Abraham, leads to Moses, shows us the glory of the kingdom of David, and then finally leads us to the man he has chosen to govern the earth, Christ Jesus our Lord. And what's God's intention toward the nations? Is it only that they should encounter judgment at the end of time? Well, you know, there are people who study prophecy that way. I mean, they go to Daniel, then to Revelation, maybe to First and Second Thessalonians, Zechariah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, so forth. And basically, they concentrate on but one thing. They say, look, everything's getting worse. People are getting more sinful. God is going to judge the world. And, and look, this is true. But listen, while it's true, it's not the whole truth. So what is God's intention to the nations? Well, part of that answer is found in verse 18 seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Did you hear it? God's intention is to bless the nations. His intention is to do good to the people of Canada and the people of the U.S. and the people of Mexico. He wants to pour out his grace on the people of Central and South America and the, and the people of Europe and, and the Near East and of Asia and India and China and the people of the islands. He knows the cultural practices of the people. He understands their language and history. And God, in spite of their sins, is looking to bless them. But how is God going to do that? Well, he's going to do that through Abraham. He will create a people, his chosen people, Israel. Through them, he will bring his Messiah into the world. And then he will create a church, a people made up of every race and tribe and language, a people that exist for his praise and glory in Christ Jesus. The story of Abraham is the beginning of God's plan to grace the earth. You have to read Genesis 18 in the light of that reality. In verse 17, God says, I've settled on that plan and nothing will deter me from that plan. In essence, his plan is that he will bless the nations through the people he has chosen, a people that begin to arise with Abraham and a people who will find their fruition in Jesus. I want you to listen to 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice, first of all, that we're a chosen people of God. That means Abraham's blessing is, is rightfully fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. And secondly, we're a royal priesthood. You know what a priest is? A priest represents the people before God. He cries out to God on behalf of the people, and he calls for God's favor on behalf of the people. And a priest represents God to the people. I remember a number of years ago, I was having a backyard barbecue, and we had invited our neighbors. I remember asking a blessing for the food, and then I asked God to touch the hearts and bless each neighbor. I mentioned them by name. And one neighbor woman who had been quite antagonistic to the gospel came to me with tears in her eyes and told me that no one had ever prayed for her before. She was profoundly moved. See, I wonder how often you've prayed for a neighbor and a colleague and a fellow student, a boss, someone who doesn't believe, and in their presence simply prayed a blessing on their life. It is life transforming for them. God's source of blessing for this nation is you and I, his people who live here. See, why are we priests and kings? 
We are to declare his praises among the nations. He has called us into light, and we are to declare this. But there's more. See, God's intention is to begin with Abraham's children and through them to build a nation and to make his people an example to the nations. And then from that example, well, to create the church of the living Savior for the sake of, for the benefit of the nations. That brings me back to this matter of the big grand prayers that we all should be praying. How should we pray for the nations? Well, first, we should pray for the nations by praying that righteousness would prevail in the nations and that wicked men would come to nothing. We should plead with God that as Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Second, we should pray for the nations that a living and viable proclamation of the gospel be heard in the countries we're praying for, and that a church of the living Savior would flourish there. And third, since that's so, we should pray most fervently for the church and for missionaries who give their lives for that nation. And out of that, we need to pray for the blessing of God on the nations as a whole, as Jesus taught us, that God causes the sun to rise on both the wicked and the just, and, and so within his wider purposes, that God brings peace and prosperity and a rich sense of his abundant provision to that nation. Where disease and famine stalk a land, we should cry out to God that he would have mercy. In short, we should pray for the nations, for it is the calling that we have received from Abraham and from Jesus. And when we pray, let's pray after the manner in which God himself has called us to pray. John, uh, one of the themes in your message was was praying for the nations. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, should we be making that part of our corporate worship? Should we be praying for the nations together? You know, Ben, I think that we uh, normally do, most churches do when they have, let's say, a missions conference, and, and suddenly there's a greater concern for the nations than has ever been before. But sometimes, you know, that's like a week or one Sunday, and then we go back to what we usually have. Uh, in fact, in my own experience, I sometimes had individuals that said, you know, when, when it's Mission Sunday, I, I'm just not even going to be there because it just makes me feel guilty. So I've had all sorts of responses around this thing over my lifetime. But I guess I'd want to say, if we just make this a part of our mentality that we, we are world Christians in the sense that Christians, by their very nature, think about God's dealings in the entire earth. And so I would argue, let's make that a part of our regular worship services. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for more of our series on Confident Faith right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. We're so grateful for the incredible support Back to the Bible Canada received during the Believe campaign in December. Your generosity has positioned the ministry well for the beginning of 2018. As you know, the key verse for the campaign was John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This verse represents the heart of this ministry. Bible teaching that draws people of all ages and backgrounds into a deeper walk and standing in Christ. In 2018, we celebrate 60 years of ministry in Canada. It couldn't have happened without you, so we extend our most sincere thanks. And keep an ear open for all the upcoming special activities, programs, and events that will take place throughout the year. 
For more information and to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.